Coming to you from the Hosanna Student Ministries in Lakeville, Minnesota, it's Ask Science Mike Live. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Everybody, it's so great to be with you again this week. Sorry for missing last week's show. I have literally been all over the globe doing speaking events, and I just didn't have time to make an episode. But we're back with everybody's favorite thing, Ask Science Mike Live. I don't know what's going to happen. This is the first time we've ever done one with students, and there's no telling what kind of curveballs could follow. But let's not worry about that. Instead, let's get it started. Hi, my name's Natalie. Last night you mentioned that humans didn't discover the color blue until a few thousand years ago, but how did we discover the color blue? <laughs> oh man, I hate how good that question is. How did we discover the color blue? Man, I have no idea. <laughs> I'm glad I gave that caveat. <clears throat> There's a thing that happens in culture and especially in the church world that drives me nuts, that people are afraid to admit their ignorance. And so what happens too often is people get a question they don't know, and they just kind of tap dance. And so I'm going to start by saying, I don't know. Well, so one of the greatest mysteries in anthropology is where language came from. We don't know when or how language emerged in human societies. For good reason, spoken language came before written language, and spoken language didn't leave a record. It just sort of happened. So... What we understand from the way language happens now is somebody notices something and they try to describe it. And often words are born when people make hybrids of other words. Uh, and then other times people just like invent a new sequence of sounds to describe that thing. And then they repeat it. And they do it enough, it gets popular, it becomes a new word. So carrot cake... When someone made the first carrot cake, they're like, I made a cake, I put carrots in it, <laughs> so it's a carrot cake. And that was just like these two known things that are descriptive. Uh, but when, when we sort of identified blue as something distinct from green, which it was not before, I don't know, I'm going to guess that was probably born out of the arts, but I'm not positive. I know that... Uh, early in um, art history, blue was a really difficult color to fabricate, really expensive, uh, and that may be responsible for some of its regal connotations throughout history, but I'm very proud to say on the first question of the show, no clue. My name is Grace. Hey, Grace. It's good Hi, to see you. good to see you, too. Um, I have a question about black holes. Ooh, I'm excited. And you have so, notes, so I know it's going to be a good one. <laughs> yeah, and I'm just wondering, um, could our world potentially like get swallowed into a black hole? Ooh, you're going to hate this answer. Absolutely, our world could potentially get swallowed into a black hole. The good news is it's very unlikely. So, first of all, let's talk about what black holes are, because that helps. There's this thing called gravity. You're all fans, trust me that's keeping us from just floating into space right now. 
So for example, like at the equator, the Earth is spinning, you know, like a thousand miles an hour. So without gravity, you would just fling off into space going a thousand miles an hour. It would be a terrible scene. When you get gravity intense enough, it causes weird stuff. For example, stars act as lenses for light. They have so much gravity, they bend the path that light takes. And we, in astronomy, we use stars and galaxies to do something called gravitational lensing to act like a giant telescope so we can see something farther away than that galaxy more clearly. How weird is that? We do that today, okay? Einstein predicted it way back in the day. We've started doing it relatively recently. When you compress something enough that gravity kind of folds in on itself, you get a black hole. We have no idea what's in a black hole. Complete mystery. Because of laws of physics break down, what we do know is a black hole is surrounded by something called an event horizon. And once something falls into the event horizon, it can't come out. Gravity's too intense. It's like a you bend the fabric of space-time to the point that it closes back on itself. You just have this pocket of weird space in the black hole. Anything can be compressed enough to become a black hole. If we compressed one of you enough, you would become a black hole. You'd become a very small black hole, and you'd evaporate quickly through something called Hawking radiation, which we're not even going to talk about why they even mention it. Now, here's the bad news about black hole. Well, here's the good news. The good news is black holes are incredibly useful. There's a supermassive black hole at the center of the Milky Way galaxy, and it helps hold the whole galaxy together because it's so heavy. Because galaxies spin so fast that stars themselves should be flung out into space, right? So black holes are a huge part of what holds galaxies together. Black holes plus something called dark matter. Who's heard of dark matter? Who knows what dark matter is? If you're raising your hand, you're lying. Nobody knows what dark matter is. Dark matter is a word scientists use for the reason galaxies don't fly apart. The math says galaxies should fly apart, and they don't. So that's the good thing. Both sound spooky, black holes and dark matter, but both keep galaxies together. We like galaxies together because that way you can get planets, okay? We like planets because, I don't know, I just don't think we'd do very well without planets. The bad thing is, sometimes two black holes orbit each other, and one of them's smaller. And if its orbit goes fast enough and gets disturbed by, say, a third black hole, it can be shot loose from its orbit with the orbital velocity it had from orbiting its larger sibling. And what does that mean? It means all through the universe there are black holes accelerated to a high fraction of light speed just zipping through empty space. And if they run into something, that thing becomes part of the black hole. So there is always a very small chance that at any moment our planet or our sun could be consumed by a roving black hole. Don't freak out. I see some pretty dour faces. Here's the good news. Space is big. Space is so ridiculously, unfathomably big that it messes with your intuition. For example, in the relatively near cosmic future, Andromeda and the Milky Way are going to collide with each other, these two galaxies. Kind of a bummer. I mean, a car collision is bad. 
what happens when two galaxies collide? Nothing. Statistically, it is very unlikely that as these two galaxies, each with hundreds of millions of stars collide, that any two stars will run into each other. Why? Because space is really, really big. So yes, it is absolutely possible and plausible that the Earth at any moment could be consumed by a roving black hole, but the good news is you're probably more likely to win the lottery 13 or 14 times in a row. Hi, I'm Brandon. Um, Do you believe in reincarnation? Do I believe in reincarnation? Nope. No, I'm just kidding. That's a joke. Um, I believe in resurrection. I believe that resurrection is the language of the cosmos. I think it's fascinating that every star that exists today is made out of another star that died and blew up and then made a new star. I think it's fascinating that every planet is made of the guts of an old star. I think it's interesting that all of us here today are the resurrection of our lunch, right? That was tissue that was alive, then was not alive, then we ate it. And in a few hours, most of it's us, except the stuff that we flush. It's kind of a nasty image, I know. But the point being, somehow written into the fabric of creation is a cycle of birth, death, and resurrection. So many people who like science as much as I do find it deeply, deeply strange, incredulous, silly, that Christians believe that there was once a man who was God who died and was resurrected. But I think that's just God's signature. I think makes total sense that when God was trying to say, this guy, this guy was different, that he would use resurrection to explain that. Now, statistically, I understand that belief in reincarnation has never been more common in the United States than it is right now, that even a lot of Christians believe in some form of reincarnation. Uh, and here's where I get really weird. I admit I don't actually know what happens when we die. I can't measure it in a lab. I don't have a particle accelerator that shows me. I have no scientific evidence for what happens when I die. And yet, my experiences with God, my time with God, and the collective experience of everyone who's ever followed Jesus, a group we call the church, leads me to a profound hope that on the other side of that great curtain, I'm reunited with the one who made me. All that said, I'm not particularly preoccupied with what happens when we die. To me, the far more interesting question posed by the gospel is not what happens when we die, but what happens when we truly live. What does it mean to make the kingdom of God near? What does it mean to carry forth this Old Testament idea of shalom, of God's perfect peace? What does the world look like when in the example of Jesus, I choose not what I'm entitled to, but instead I choose to be broken and poured out for others in the same way that Jesus was broken and poured out for me?
The reincarnation, to me, moves the stakes to some other time. You know, Paul said, don't be so preoccupied with heaven as to be useless here on earth. And that's an admonishment I take very, very seriously. I'm way, 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 way more present with God when I spend time one-on-one with a homeless man who no one will ever touch, and I invest in him as a friend than what I think about what might happen when I die. The gospel, I believe, is found when we get our hands dirty. Hi, my name's Tegan. Um, Okay, what is the science behind speaking in tongues? Oh, yes, that's such a good one. So there's this fascinating thing called neurotheology. Neurotheology, the principal founder was a guy named Andrew Newberg. To me, he's like Katy Perry, Taylor Swift, and T-Pain all rolled into one. He's a neuroscientist. And he, uh, for someone who talks about theology, doesn't actually talk about what God is like very much. He's a neurotheologian, so what he does is study the brains of people who believe in God. Because you can measure that, right? You can put someone in a brain scanner. And there's something really interesting about people who speak in tongues. If you look at all forms of spiritual prayer and meditation, they're neurologically very similar and very powerful. Speaking in tongues is a totally different animal. So when, when traditional Christian prayer meditation or even Buddhist prayer or whatever, Islamic prayer, any of these things, you see character activity where the prefrontal cortex is occupied, the anterior cingulate cortex activates, the hippocampus activates, and uh, Westerners, the left temporal lobe, which is associated with language, activates, and Easterners, the visual cortex uh, activates because they don't pray in language, they pray with imagery. But either way, it's pretty similar. And for people who are very, they're masters of prayer, their parietal lobe shuts down. Your parietal lobe, among other things, is responsible for your understanding and awareness of physical space and proximity. I've experienced that. When I go into a deep state of prayer, when I finish, there's a moment where I'm disoriented when I open my eyes. I'm a bit surprised by my surroundings because I forgot about them. Because in my prayer, I felt like I was in the presence of God. In all those cases, your limbic system is not terribly active. That's nothing like speaking in tongues. The science of speaking in tongues, neurologically, is that your limbic system, the part of your brain that gives you the most powerful feelings, lights up like a Christmas tree. And your prefrontal cortex, the part of your brain you traditionally associate with your consciousness, gets quiet. And when you speak in tongues, something fascinating happens. Your limbic system talks. Your limbic system never gets to talk. Your limbic system gets analyzed by the prefrontal cortex, who coordinates with your temporal lobe and then describes what happens. In tongues, your rat brain, your mammal brain, gets to talk all by itself. Is it any wonder that people who speak in tongues feel like someone else is speaking through them? Neurologically, that's accurate. The normal part of their brain that talks is pretty much asleep or at best observing when people are genuinely speaking in tongues. It's fascinating to me. Uh, I grew up Southern Baptist. And for Christians, 
Southern Baptists are remarkably uncomfortable with the supernatural. <laughs> because if you're in church and someone raises their hands, you go, whoa. Or if you're in church and someone claps, you go, whoa. We're Stoics. We sing, we reflect. If someone speaks in tongues, you look for an interpreter, and if there isn't one, you get to tell them they're unbiblical and have to be quiet, right? It's like Baptist thing. It's only when I started to study neuroscience that I realized what a powerful form of prayer that was. And again, also completely unique. It's fascinating stuff. If you'd like to read more about that, there's a book called How God Changes Your Brain by Andrew Newberg, and uh, it's amazing. It's a fantastic read, and it's super accessible. He has a good, good section on tongues in there. Hi, my name's Ike. Um, this is a question about Lagrange points. Um, so I know there's like a few between us and the moon and Mars, I think, too. Um, is it possible that we could like build either like a control center or a base in there since the effect of gravity is so low there? Yeah, might be like the nerdiest question in the history of the show. I love it. <laughs> Lagrange points are a side effect of three-body gravitational interaction. Now you get it. <laughs> Any three objects in the universe with mass create Lagrange points. Now, so technically, there's um, an Earth-Mike-Carter Lagrange points. But since Carter and I don't have very much mass, especially Carter, our Lagrange points aren't significant. But when you look at a larger system like the Earth, the Moon, and the Sun, it gets interesting. So uh, there are five Lagrange points in any three-body system. L1, L2 and 3, L4 and L5. L5 is on the far side of the third body. So L5 not particularly interesting uh, for us. What is interesting, now they're, they're all different sizes. Now, here, here's why they're interesting. If you're in a Lagrange point in a three-body system, gravity is kind of canceled out. So if you can get into a Lagrange point and just kind of stay there, you don't need a lot of fuel to maintain your relative position to those three bodies. That's what's fascinating about them. So we tend to put like, satellites and WMAP probes and other things in Lagrange points, because once they get there, they're really stable, at least the big ones. I can't remember, I think that the two on the side are relatively unstable, so we tend to focus on the three that are in line with the two major bodies. Can't remember, forgive me. Either way, there are a lot of scientists who advocate for putting some kind of command center or refueling station so that we have a platform to do larger exploration uh, of the solar system. Here's the problem. They're not close. We spend most of our energy today in science putting humans into something called low Earth orbit. That's where the International Space Station is. About 100 kilometers higher, that's where the Hubble Space Telescope is. We call that space shuttle range. The space shuttle could get to low Earth orbit, but not much farther. To get to Lagrange points, you need more fuel. You need uh, more stuff, and so it would be a commitment to do supply runs on an ongoing basis to a Lagrange point that we're just not at, right? Right now, it takes like an act of God or at least an act of Congress, which might be more difficult, <laughs> to go to another heavenly body with people. 
It's a big deal to get to the moon right now, much less Mars. And it's less effort to go to Mars once than it is to go to a Lagrange point and then to Mars. The idea would be as if we're ever frequenting other celestial bodies, especially the asteroid belt, it would make a lot of sense to have something sitting out there. Until then, mostly what we keep at those points are observational satellites, things that look at the Earth, things that look at the stars. We do a lot of uh, solar observation in Lagrange points. Really fascinating stuff. Uh, and I'm actually a member of several nerd societies. Um, one is called the, the Planetary Society. And uh, gosh, I've got my pen. I have another one basically that the point of the society is to advocate not only going to Mars, but setting up a Lagrange colony to make Mars more accessible. And I pay an annual due for that because I'm really weird. I'm Allie. Will it ever be possible for humans to use 100% of their brain power? Absolutely. When humans uh, use 100% of their brain power, that happens today. We call that a grand mal seizure. Uh, so this is a big misunderstanding in the popular look at the brain. Your iPhone has like probably three, four billion transistors on its CPU it is not useful to use them all at the same time, right? What's interesting, what does the math of an iPhone is using some fraction of them, and your brain is exactly like that. You don't want to use all your brain, but all of your brain gets used some time. For example, part of your brain, when activated, makes you feel very angry. And another part, when activated, makes you feel very sad. If you used 100% of your brain, you'd be very angry and very sad and very surprised, very happy, very confused, very hungry, and very full all the time. It would not be a particularly useful way to live. So the, the idea mainly given to us by comic books, those bastions of scientific accuracy, is that humans use a fraction of their neurological gifts. And it's, ju it's just not true. Now that said, we can be wasteful of the gifts of our brain. Uh, I consider most hours watching television wasted. <laughs> right? I don't watch a lot of TV. I tend to try to do things that let me maximize the effectiveness of my brain to make it help me accomplish the goals that matter the most to me. Uh, I try to help my brain um, have a better memory, to think sharper, to be more loving, to be more forgiving, to be more serving, and those are all choices I make. So although I don't think we should be moving to try to use 100% of our brains, I think the core idea there of using our brains better over time is something every person should strive for. Hi, I'm Megan. Um, what happens when somebody collapses during intense prayer or worship? What happens when someone collapses during intense prayer or worship? Step one, no one has brain scanned that. Because to brain scan someone, you have to like have them lie down in a brain scanner and you can't collapse when you're already laying down. I'm actually not making a joke. That's just true. Um, I suspect 
that they're, they're putting themselves into basically a flight or fight state through the constant uh, emotional high, that they're elevating their blood pressure high enough, long enough, that creates a strain on both their brain and their heart, and that they have a blood pressure crash and just traditionally kind of pass out, um, or that it's um, social conditioning. So you can kind of put people into light states of self-hypnosis. Uh, if they see people do things enough, if they, they believe hard enough, I don't want to misspeak here. I'm not talking about someone pretending. I'm talking about someone being carried away with an experience. And if that sounds weird, let me describe to you why you're the same way. Any Harry Potter fans in here? Okay. Man, that's low. What a weird audience. Okay. Um, I expected every hand because it's Harry Potter. Uh, Of the Harry Potter fans, who cried when Dumbledore died? Okay, well that, that's, yeah. Dumbledore's not real. <laughs> He's not a real guy. I went to London and I couldn't find Hogwarts, right? And yet, Dumbledore dies and we cry because we make it real. We invest in this character. That doesn't mean like it's ridiculous to cry when Dumbledore dies. It doesn't mean art and culture and literature are useless any more than that, like very possibly those sort of self-hypnotic states scientifically or self-induced doesn't make them unvaluable. And in fact, this is a tension we often face. If you study it scientifically enough, you will find some mechanism that describes why it happened deterministically, mechanically, materialistically. And that leads us to believe that it doesn't have meaning. But just because a clock has gears doesn't mean that its face doesn't tell time. Right? The gears are just the mechanism that allow the time telling to happen in the same way that the neurological state is simply the mechanism that allows the spiritual experience to occur. The fact that it's rooted in the brain doesn't make it any less real, any less relevant, or any less actionable. These are still things that change us profoundly. I guarantee you, if someone would have had me in a brain scanner on the day I had the most powerful spiritual experience of my life, they could have said what parts of my brain were doing it and it wouldn't have changed the impact it had on my life at all. Because where else would I experience something but my brain? You can put me in a brain scanner, and you can say my children's name, and you can watch my anterior cingulate cortex light up. That doesn't mean that I don't love my children. It just means that's where love lives in my brain. Um, what is your opinion on evolution versus creationism? What is my... Wow, okay. What is my opinion on evolution versus creationism? We did um, an episode of the Liturgist podcast with me and a guy named Michael Gunger, and we talk about evolution versus creationism for like 90 minutes. Uh, I'd encourage you to check that out. The versus bothers me. 
here's the thing. I am an evolutionist. I think that evolution via natural selection perfectly describes how we have so many different kinds of animals and plants and stuff on the planet today. But I think when I talk about evolution, I'm talking about the mechanics of what Genesis is talking about when it says that from the dust we are made. So some people read that, from the dust we are made, and they picture God reaching down from heaven and forming a man out of clay, breathe the breath of life into that man, and you had Adam, okay? And then I look at the fossil record and genetics and all kinds of things like that, and I say it looks very likely that all life on this planet has a single ancestor. And that means some proteins, some amino acids, at some point made something like a cell. And then that just kept on dividing and kept on living. Boy, that sounds like a miracle to me. Because here's the thing, we keep looking at planets and we keep not finding life. I mean, we have found thousands of planets. The universe is teeming with planets. We think there's 400 million stars in the Milky Way. We think there could be a trillion planets. And yet here, on this one, there's life. So whether you're talking about biblical creationism or whether you're talking about evolution that God guided, either way, life is a beautiful miracle. It's just a gift I did nothing to receive. I didn't make myself, and I can't make another person by will. I mean, I can procreate. That's not quite the same thing. I've done that twice. It was pretty cool. (laughs) But I didn't decide who this person would be. My children came to me who they were, and it was just my job to protect them and love them as God molded them, as God himself crafted my children into who they are. See, the thing is, today, I read a study from a sociologist, and he was charting people's opinions. And and in this study, they found that if a person believes or accepts evolution and their church does not, that's the most at-risk group in the world to leave Christianity, in the world. It's more moving than marriage equality. It's more moving than poverty. It's more moving than Calvinism versus Arminism. And literally everything is more moving than Calvinism versus Arminism. (laughs) I am not willing to watch a generation walk away from the church over such a trivial issue. So if it is critical to how you understand God that the earth was made in six literal 24-hour days, awesome. If, on the other hand, you have trouble reconciling that with modern science and you can't accept God without also accepting evolution, fantastic, because the important thing is not how we got here. The important thing is who got us here and what are we going to do about it. It leaves me to look at my faith as something that's not a set of beliefs, a set of propositions, a set of data points, but instead a willingness to stop doing what I was doing and go, wait, who's that guy? You see, when I read the Gospels, I read about 12 guys who didn't get it, 12 guys who always made the wrong decisions, 12 guys 
who constantly got it wrong. They didn't know anything about a resurrection. And most of the time when they talked about Messiah, they talked about the wrong thing, right? They thought Jesus was going to overthrow the government. Were the disciples Christians? Yeah, they were the first Christians. But they weren't Christians because of what they believed. They were Christians because when he said, follow me, they dropped their nets or left their tax business or left their doctor's office and they followed the man. Our faith is not about creationism versus evolution. Our faith is about a willingness to leave everything behind to follow that man who was God where he's going. Well, that does it for this week's show. Thanks for listening, everybody. No more events in 2015. 2016 starting to fill up. So if you want to see where I'm going to be and when, if you'd like to meet me in person, I'd love to meet you. Just go to AskScienceMike.com and click events. And of course, if you'd like to bring Ask Science Mike live to your church, community, college, conference, whatever, I'd love to be there. Go to AskScienceMike.com and click book Mike. Thanks for listening, everybody, and I'll see you next week. (laughs) 